Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome John Clark to the podcast. John is a native of the island of New Orleans, where his family has lived for 12 generations, and where he and his children and grandchildren continue to reside. John is director of La Terre Institute for Community and Ecology. He's Professor Emeritus at Loyola University, where he taught philosophy and environmental studies for many years, and an author. His latest book is Between Earth and Empire, From the Necrocene to the Beloved Community. So thank you very much, John, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you very much. I'm extremely happy to be here and honored. We've been in touch a little bit, and it's great to have an opportunity to talk to you about your work and particularly uh, your most recent book. Can you maybe just set the scene a little bit and tell us a little bit about your background and your research focus, your interests? All right. Well, the, fir- the first thing I have to say is that my background is that uh, my family has been in New Orleans for 12 generations, and uh, I'm very much rooted in, in, the, in the culture of, of our place. And I, I think a lot of my interest in community and place comes from being so embedded and in, in, ingrained in, in, in our local culture. Uh, I also have a background of being a philosopher and uh, writing books and a history of, I guess now it must be over 50 years of activism. And there are certain aspects of the activism and participation that have profoundly influenced my ideas about some of the things we're going to talk about, social ecology, community, and so forth. In the 1970s, I was very heavily involved in the co-op movement and the alternative education movement and worked in co-op preschools and uh, tried to organize worker co-ops and coordinated a food co-op. And uh, basically, I, I developed a vision based on that experience of not only co-ops and education, but many other things that were going on in, in that period. Uh, of a different sort of society that would be cooperative based on mutual aid and uh, solidarity. In the 1980s, I, I got involved in, in heavily in a movement called social ecology, which perhaps we might talk about, which has also been one of my theoretical interests for uh, well over 40 years now, actually. And also in, in uh, communitarian anarchism, which is very closely related to social ecology, and the Green Movement, and particularly for about uh, 15 years or so, I was uh, very heavily involved in, in Green Movement and, uh, and, and to some degree Green Party uh, activism. In the 1990s, I discovered an issue that became very important to me, which was the issue of West Papua, uh, because a corporation that was doing rather devastating things in our area was doing even more devastating things, uh, actually genocidal and ecocidal things in the, the western half of the island of New Guinea, which is called West Papua. Uh, so that had a very big transformative effect on me. 
And then beginning in the early 2000s, I began to get involved with uh, Tibetans very heavily. I started a program, a, a summer study program, was spending about a month with Tibetans in the summer in Dharamsala, which is the center of the Tibetan exile community. And that had a very powerful effect on my ideas of, of uh, community. And then finally, uh, I think the, the other part of my background that's most significant to what we're going to talk about is Hurricane Katrina in 2005, which devastated my community. And I was in India at the time, and I, I came back as quickly as I could and participated in post-Katrina recovery communities. And uh, I hope we can come back to that. But the experience was very powerful. And I, I felt for the first time I was living with people who were, were creating a community of the sort that I would like to live in for the rest of my life, in fact. Uh, so after that, um, six years ago, in fact, I stopped teaching at the university and decided to uh, put my efforts into a project I called Latere, I call Latere Institute for Community and Ecology, and I focused on writing and organizing uh, since then. Uh, so I think those are the, probably the, some of the most significant aspects of my background that have shaped my, my outlook and my activity at this point. We face a series of interlocking environmental various crises. What, what in particular is on your mind right now, John? Well, there's one big thing on my mind. <laughs> Which is which is the global ecological crisis. When I when I was still teaching at the university, I, I told my students that uh, there at the beginning of every semester, I told every class, I said, no matter what we're studying, and I, I taught philosophy and film and uh, Buddhist philosophy and a lot of other things. I said, no matter what our course is, there's one thing that I want everybody to think about which is that we are in the midst of the sixth great mass extinction of life on Earth. And one of the ways I like to talk about this is if, if an extraterrestrial came from another galaxy to study planet Earth and looked at what was happening on this planet, there would be no question about what the news from planet Earth would be. That's something that has only happened a few times in the history of developed life on this planet is now happening. They might include on their, their, in their article to their home planet that the, the inhabitants of this planet seem mostly oblivious <laughs> to the events that are going on, and they're concerned with many, many other things that are far less important. So, uh, you know, basically the message is if, if, if E.T. would call home, E.T. would say, the news from planet Earth is that something that is going on, which, which I call the necrocene, the, the new period of death on Earth. Uh, absolutely. Uh, what, what, what do you see as, as the roots of these crises we're facing? Have you got a, a theory or ideas over the many decades you've been working in this area? Well, yes, uh, that, that, that's really what I'm working on uh, very intensively at this point, trying to develop this theory. I mean, I, I do come out of this tradition, partly out of the tradition called social ecology, which is today mostly associated with, with a, a thinker and activist named Murray Bookchin, with whom I worked uh, 
for, for a number of years, particularly in the 1980s. But I really traced the, the, the roots of, of this theory far back, particularly, uh, I, I stress a, a, a philosopher and geographer named Ebizé Reclus, and we, we, I don't think we have to talk about all the theories. But, but what I'm interested in is a, a, a comprehensive theory with a methodology that would help us understand why the world is the way it is now, how it could be another way, and what the barriers are to changing from, you know, a basically an ecocidal uh, form of life uh, to something that could be called sustainable, but really I would like to call regenerative, uh, so that we could once again become part of, 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 of the, the earth manifesting itself the processes of, of birth and rebirth on this planet, the processes of creativity on this planet. So that's what I'm interested in. I could talk a little about the analysis that's part of that theory, if you would like. Yeah, so I mean, you, you put your finger on something. This is the sustainability agenda, but it's, it's broader than that. Sustainability has become one of these terms, uh, problematic as well. Why would you distinguish regenerative and what does that add as a perspective? You know, in, in philosophy, uh, there's a concept that goes back to a thinker that I, I don't particularly like in many ways, but he was very profound in others, uh, Heidegger, who had this concept of being toward death. And the idea that to really confront life, you have to take death seriously. You have to be aware of the mortality of yourself, for instance. Uh, I'm very much interested in Buddhist philosophy, which stresses the impermanence of all things. Um, and, and I think it's very important that people be able to face the phenomena of the universe, the phenomena of the world that they live in, the phenomena of their own life. And part of this is, is death. And uh, as I said, I use the term necrosine. I could talk about why I don't use the term Anthropocene or Capitalocene, which are two of the big alternatives. But I, I use the term Necrocene because I think we have to fully realize that we, you know, we were in the, in, the, in the Cenozoic, which is the period that I like to look to as the previous one, the period of new life forms, animal forms, literally, in, in Cenozoic. But, but new life forms were appearing. And there's been a reversal as the result of the, 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 the forms of social organization that we have on this planet at the moment, as, as a result of the political and economic and cultural systems, we have reversed the course of evolution. And we're now in a period of new death on Earth. So that's the first part. But uh, being toward death is not our only problem. I mean, being toward life is something that we also have to uh, recognize. And, and we have to develop this in our own consciousness, in our own being. So that, for instance, traditional societies revolved around life and life forces. And also about the third, the, the third concept I'd like to mention is being toward birth. That's why this is really the answer to your question, why regeneration is so important. Because ultimately, we are not focused on being toward birth. That what life is really about is rebirth and creativity. One of the things I'm very much interested in is the relationship between art 
and creativity in our lives. And again, if I can mention again, uh, we, we can look to indigenous societies to learn a lot of lessons, not that indigenous societies solved all the problems, we don't want to romanticize them, but they were societies that had a sustainable relationship to the natural world. In general, we're not talking about you know, empires that emerged in, in, uh, within indigenous societies. We're not talking about the Aztecs and so forth, but, but there are so many indigenous societies that were, had cultures of nature. And uh, their, their, their way of life was embedded in nature. Their symbolism, their images, their rites, their rituals were about the forces of nature, the cycles of nature, and the way in which we are all interconnected. You know, it's a cliche, but it's also something that in many ways we've forgotten. Uh, Native Americans often use uh, the phrase, uh, all my relations, as a kind of greeting, salutation, it's, it's a very important concept. And, and, and the idea is that so many Native American societies have been cultures of relationship, cultures of kinship. And kinship has been something that not only encompasses all human beings, but also encompasses all beings. So I've been very much interested in cultures and traditions that can contribute to developing you know, the reemergence of this kind of worldview. You, you, you also find it in, in many Asian cultures, uh, in Buddhism, for instance, with the idea of pratichu samutpada, which is dependent origination, that everything is interconnected, that nothing has being in itself, that its, beings are, its being is, is a product of all of its relationships to everything else. Uh, so there's a lot we could talk about. I, I want to know what you want to talk about, but these are some of the themes that are important to me. But I'd like to see a culture of rebirth and that at the center of our community would be life and birth and rebirth. And not only literally in the biological sense, but also in the cultural sense, uh, a society, a community of creativity and expression, uh, which is one reason why I got interested in the alternative education movement in, in the early 70s and help start uh, co-op preschools and so forth. Because uh, the real question is, how can we start in childhood with creating this milieu of creativity and, of course, of the acceptance of the, of the creative powers of each person with the little human being being recognized as an artist and a musician and all, having all the other powers that are often not developed in, in our traditional institutionalized systems. Uh, so those are some of the things that have been on my mind for the last 50 years. <laughs> no, absolutely. We could have uh, many, many, many conversations, John, and, and, and rich ones, I'm sure. I want to be a little bit more narrowly focused right now for the next question is, I would like to talk to your your, your sense of you know, potential for social cultural change. You've lived through various epochs of, of idealism, I suppose you could say, and, and worked on the ground and in, in, you know, these cooperative initiatives and so forth. But what, 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 are you optimistic for the new administration in the United States and the Biden administration? Well, no, I'm not optimistic at all. I, I consider it part of the problem. I consider it a continuation of the system that's, that's destroying the biosphere and that will lead to collapse. 
I really didn't fully answer your last question. If I could just add something about the, the theory that's behind it. And it, it, in a way, it would answer the present question also about why I'm not optimistic about the Biden administration. Uh, my analysis includes a specific analysis of, of what I call spheres of social determination. I single out four of those, which, is, which are the social institutional sphere, the sphere of the social ideology, the sphere of the social imaginary, and the sphere of the social ethos. Uh, and and, and what, I'm, what I'm getting at is that people are shaped by many things about the world in which they live. So there's, a, there's an institutional structure, there's an economic structure, a political structure that Biden is part of. There's an economic structure, which in many ways overpowers the political structure fundamentally. So, so we have social institutions. We also have a social ideology and a lot of the educational system, the, the system of communication and so forth are, are ways of perpetuating the social ideology. And we could talk about the details of that. There's also a social imaginary, which is in a sense our collective fantasy life. How do we imagine ourselves? Do we imagine ourselves as uh, you know, there's a f famous Eric Fromm and so forth that talked about the difference between having and being. Do we imagine ourselves as consumers? Do we imagine ourselves as, uh, we, do we identify with the nation state? Like right now, we're having a conflict between the social imaginary, which is based on consumption and so forth. And, and there, there's a resurgence of a, of, a, of a kind of backward imaginary in which we're, we're more tribal and we identify with this large group, which becomes the nation state in, in our age. And then there's also the social ethos, which is about every little detail of how we live our lives, all of our habits. It's, it's also the affective dimension. It's the dimension of, of how we desire and how we get gratifications in our, in our everyday activity. And uh, so, so if you put all of these together, there is a certain form of life that dominates in any period. And so, 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 you know, the question is, what is the dominant institutional structure, the dominant ideology, the dominant imaginary, and the dominant ethos? And in what ways do we participate in that? If we decide that we have to have a different kind of world, we cannot continue to live within the dominant institutions, imaginary ideology, and ethos and successfully make that transition. So one of the reasons why, you know, I believe we have to do we have to do everything on every level, the level of the, the person, the small group, larger groups, and also the, the social level. We have to institute changes at all those levels in all these four spheres of social determination. So this is the reason why I think we have to have like a, a communitarian revolutionary approach. We have to create a whole, a whole realm of society in which people are thinking and living and imagining and desiring and feeling and speaking in a different way. And then we might have a chance to, to make that geo-historical turn that we need to make. It's kind of overwhelming, I'm sure, when you hear this. No, it's very interesting what you say. And, you, you know, you're going into the roots of many of these issues. And, and you know, you're talking about issues like education. Now, it's, it's, some of these are clearly operating over a very different time frame. You're talking about education, you know, how many decades for, for it to see the results and the impacts before even thinking about how long that change will take. Do you worry about the kind of urgency of the environmental problems that we're facing? 
And, and, and what does that mean? Or, or how do you respond to that? In your latest book, you talk about radical change. Can, can you talk a little bit about the different time frames and, and what, why you think radical change? What is radical change and why we need it? Well, radical change, you know, I mean, it's a cliche that goes to the roots. And in a sense, what I'm talking about is the roots. I think we have to face reality. I mean, in a sense, I'm a utopian. You know, I'm very inspired by utopian thought. I'm, entire, I'm inspired by utopian, utopian experimentation. But I, I also think we have to be absolutely realistic. We, we have to, you know, and Aristotle had the idea of, of practical wisdom. In, in uh, Buddhism, there's the concept of skillful means. We can't delude ourselves about what we're doing. We can't delude ourselves about the magnitude of the problem. And we also can't delude ourselves by thinking that there are quick solutions to problems that uh, are more complex. Now, if you can read between the lines, you know that this is a very disturbing thought because it just may be that there is no way that we can make the needed changes on the deep level that they need to be made in the amount of time we have before collapse. That's possible. In fact, there are people who have been writing about this dark mountain and so forth. You know, there there are people who believe that basically the system has uh, a, a, a certain inertia built into it and that we're not going to be, you know, the, it's like the, the tanker heading for the rocks, you know, with, and then you're going to have the huge oil spill. You no longer can turn it. Well, you know, we could use many metaphors, but, uh, you know, there's a metaphor of Easter Island. Uh, Jared Diamond used that example and many others. There was a certain point at which the, the, the inhabitants of Easter Island had devastated uh, the ecosystem to the point that they were going to have a collapse. There's also the story of the European colonies in Greenland in which they had not left. There was, was a question of the Little Ice Age in, in the Middle Ages, so that the colonies in Greenland were doomed because they continued to plant their crops, which were going to fail. They did not leave. The ice was increasing. There was no way of getting back to Europe. So they died, and they went extinct. But, okay, uh, that's one possibility. Now, one of the things that I think about in relation to that famous example of the, the colonies in Greenland is that there probably was another thing that they could do because there were people living in Greenland who knew how to live there and got through the little ice age and so forth. And in a certain sense, what they ha would have to have done was to adapt in the way that indigenous people adapt. They would have had to change their basic institutions and become diff different kinds of people. At least that would have been the, the, you know, the one way out at that point. We don't know where we are in geohistory. I believe in, you know, this is what, okay, this is my optimism. I would say we do not know that we are doomed. We are headed toward collapse. We are not turning it around. At the present time, in spite of all the good things that movements that I've been part of have been doing, we're, we continue to go in the same direction. You say that, John, and I'm sure many listeners will resonate with what you're saying. And, and you speak, you know, whereof you, you, you know your, your, your experience and, and your research and your thinking. The term we is problematic. Who's we? Okay. You know, some people will, some people maybe less so, and some people not so much at all. 
Well, the point I was making is that my optimism is that we, as a community of human beings, can make a decision that we are going to try to solve this problem and that we're going to do everything we can, that we're going to devote our lives to turning things around and that we're going to begin. That's the we I'm talking about, which is, you know, I mean, there are many ways of formulating this. In, in old uh, theories about revolution, there was always the discussion of who will be the revolutionary subject. You know, traditionally, like, for instance, in, in the West, uh, which, in which Marxism has been the dominant uh, revolutionary theory, there was the idea that the proletariat would be the revolutionary subject. Other people have looked to other revolutionary subjects. Well, it's one of the basic questions. If we're going to do an analysis of how we can solve this problem, that is, create or, you know, regenerate the, the, our own selves, our own communities, and ultimately help the earth regenerate itself or herself, uh, we have to find that revolutionary uh, subject. Yeah, absolutely. And at the heart of your work, and indeed it, it features in your latest book, Between Earth and Empire, you have a particular focus on communities. Right. And, and I'm interested in, in that, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit. What is it about communities that, that interests you? Okay. I, I have a diverse theoretical background, but part of it is the dialectical tradition and Hegel and so forth. And I, I, Hegel had this idea of... This is a kind of indirect answer, but I'll get I'll get there. <laughs> you know, he he was a critic of a certain type of uh, abstractly idealist morality, which he associated with the famous philosopher Kant. You know, do some do something as if everybody would do it, and so forth. But he was interested in something that he thought of as ethical substantiality. It's something that you could build on. I mean, ultimately, I don't believe in ultimate substances. It's not a metaphysical conception, but the ethical substantiality means that there is something there in history, in society, in the real world, in people's lives that can be the beginning of something that will develop further. So I've been intensely interested in historical and contemporary communities that have the qualities that we need ultimately to save the world. You know, the, the earth will continue without us but the world that we know, the world of the great beauty and biodiversity that we have now, will be destroyed, at least temporarily. So what, what do we have to work with? And uh, back in the early 70s, a friend of mine, we, went to, we took a trip to Washington, D.C., because we heard about this guy named Carl Hess, who was working in a neighborhood called Adams Morgan. And he co-authored a book and wrote another one. One was called Neighborhood Power, the New Localism, and the other was called Community Technology. And I was very inspired by the ideas. There are many people who have developed these ideas, but he was one of the people who was doing this 50 years ago. Uh, in, in the Adams Morgan uh, neighborhood, there were food co-ops, worker co-ops, a neighborhood organization trying to create grassroots power, there were fish farms in the basements and roof, rooftop gardens. And, and uh, I saw some of these things actually being put into effect. And I've always been interested since then, for the past 50 years, of finding real-world examples of the kind of things that we, we need to do in order to create or to continue to create 
the kind of uh, other world, the, you know, another world is possible because another world is actual, is the point. In order to, to, to continue to create that other world, we have to look to examples like that. Uh, there's a whole history of affinity groups. There's a history of based communities, for instance, in Latin America. There were hundreds of thousands of them. There's still many tens of thousands of them today. There's a history of intentional communities. I've, I've gotten uh, increasingly interested in uh, uh, therapeutic communities. I visited the, the, one of the largest and most uh, studied therapeutic communities in, in England uh, a couple of years ago and was very inspired by that experience. I'm interested in, in, in the, the continuing indigenous traditions in which traditional communities have many practices from which we can learn. Uh, in, the, in two of the books that I've done in recent years, The Impossible Community and Between Earth and Empire, I've written about some of the examples that we can look to. For instance, the, the Sarvodaya movement, or what's called the Gandhian movement in, in uh, India, which I think had one of the best programs for social transformation that I've ever come across. There's also a, a very, uh, very strong uh, Sarvodaya movement in Sri Lanka now, which I, I think is, is a wonderful model for many of the things we need to do. Uh, I've, I've also focused a lot on the Zapatista movement in Chiapas and the, the democratic autonomy movement in Rojava in, in Syria. So I, I think there, there's a lot. I mean, obviously, we could talk about any of these and, and go into detail, but there's, there's a lot that we can learn from all of these examples, yeah, yeah. from things that are going on right now in which people are basically doing what we need in order to turn things around globally. Yeah, no, I, I'm fascinated by the range over time, different communities that you, you've worked in, that you've studied. And you say in your book that, you, you, you know, that you've learned about the possibilities but also the limitations of grassroots organization. A huge topic, but I'm just wondering, are there a few key lessons, a few observations about some of the obstacles maybe of, you know, realizing these, well, call them utopian communities, but, you know, these, these communities of, of change? Now, that's a huge uh, question. I mean, th this is what we, we, we need educational institutions that, spend all of their time studying these things and gathering people together. Oh, there's a wonderful uh, video, Learning from a Barefoot College, on, on uh, a community in Bihar in India. It's a, a university for, for, for basically peasant women are the, are the main people involved in it. Uh, and I recommend that if, if anyone can, can take a look at that, uh, that, that, that they do so. Bunker Roy is longtime Gandhian activist who was one of, one of the people behind that. So, so what I would like to see is systematic study of what we can learn in positive and negative senses from communities. It, it so happened that one of the, the largest and, and uh, most successful intentional communities in the United States was, was in the state I live in, in Louisiana. It was called uh, New Yano. Originally, it was called Yano del Rio in, in California. And, and during the Depression, hundreds of people moved from California to West Central Louisiana, established a community with about six or 800 people that lasted for decades. And I, I did an article recently on that in, in the uh, Fifth Estate newspaper. 
and uh, also for for a political encyclopedia that that covers these sorts of things. Yes, yes. And uh, to to answer your question, though, I it it, it failed after uh, several decades, basically because of problems of leaders and uh, particularly one charismatic leader. And and one of the problems in uh, intentional communities is that there's, a, in a certain sense, there is a lot of power that's concentrated within the community. It becomes the center of people's lives. So when people are are, are uh, socialized within the world that I was talking about, with a certain you know institutional, imaginary, ideological, and ethotic structure. It's very difficult to avoid these kinds of problems in which there are power struggles and, and the quest for prestige and so forth. So, so this is one reason why I believe that all transformative communities have to be therapeutic communities, because we have a history of thousands of years of developing the civilized ego, which is in many ways based on power. It's hierarchical. And, and we have to learn how to transform ourselves in order to transform our small communities and ultimately our larger community. Let's take a brief break to hear about an organization we support. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. I wanted to ask you why communities, you can focus at various different levels, you've got neighborhoods, you've got in, in Europe and in the UK particularly, you've got transition towns, you've got a lot of momentum around you know, cities and, and, and climate change and so forth. What is it about a, a community that, that makes it an interesting locus or a powerful way of, of thinking about change? In a certain sense, it's powerful because it's the entire basis for our existence. You know, we would never have gotten here unless if you you look at what little human beings are like when they're born, they have to be born into a community that will take care of them. And through much of our history, we depended largely on, on the small community, what we would now call the local community for our survival. And we learned a lot of things and we became a certain type of being through being part of that community. So it's deeply rooted in our own being. And we, we have come to a point in history in which, as I continue to say, that you know, the institutional structure and other fundamental structures or destructive of the kind of community that has sustained us. So when we, when we talk about trying to create a solidarity economy, we're really trying to create the kind of economy that helped us become the beings that we are and to survive as human beings. And, uh, you know, in a certain sense, it's a very obvious kind of thing that the, dom- the dominant institutions are without doubt leading us to disaster, leading us to collapse, leading us to, to death. Uh, while while we, we know about institutions that are based on life and growth and the flourishing of all beings. So, I mean, I, I think that's why the, 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 the community of life 
the, the I, I call them, I use different terms in these books, communities of liberation and solidarity. I also call them communities of awakening and care. These are the key things about them. They have to be caring communities. We have structures that do not care. They care about profit. They care about power. They don't really care about anything, of course, literally, because they are structures. And the human beings, in a certain sense, plug into them and are paid to be part of them. But it, they are out of control, and they're headed toward disaster. I mean, what, if I could go back to well, one of the things you mentioned, mentioned at the beginning about the, you know, asking me about the analysis I, I call our age the necrocene because it's a new era of, of death on earth. Uh, I don't like the anthropocene because it, it, it just identifies the culprit. And capitalocene comes closer because it says that the capitalist economy is one of the problems. But if we really wanted to use that kind of term, we'd have to call it the, the, the androcene, the capitalocene, and we'd have to call it the mega techno scene and maybe the imperio scene because uh, it's really a, a, a complex of institutions. It's capitalism, it's the state, it's the, the mega machine, and it's patriarchy. All of these institutions have conspired structurally <laughs> in order to create disaster, and we have to reverse all of those. So the idea that uh, I'm proposing is that we know a lot about community. We know about communities of care. We know about communities that are based on life and rebirth and having a connection to the earth, and we have to recreate those communities and, and uh, value the remnants of those communities that, in a sense, these remnants are seeds of what can grow in the future and become the dominant form of social organization. Well, that's very interesting. And, and, and you're talking about the work and the co-ops and the flourishing that you saw many decades ago in, in a very different economic, uh, political environment and with quite a, a mood of optimism and, and, and possibility. How, how important is that socio-political context in terms of seeding communities. And, and, and you know, it's a big question. Communities, of course, across the world and so many different contexts and so forth. But maybe just looking at it, maybe in, in the Western world, maybe looking at it in America, for example, um, how important is that context in terms of seeding communities? And, and, and I guess the, the other part of that is that, that we react to, to trauma and to change uh, as well. So on the one hand, you can have a, you know, maybe a very kind of a optimistic or a particular political moment that way, but also you can have tremendous adversity, which presumably also creates contexts in which these kind of communities can emerge. Exactly. I mean, what you're saying is exactly what, you know, in a sense, uh, beneath, in between the lines, it's exactly what I'm thinking. People have to have the experience. People have to have the transformative experience. And uh, one of the things that sustained me for a long time was being part of small communities, educational communities, communities with co-ops and so forth, in, in which we felt like we were part of a new way of life that was developing. And the, the crucial thing for me was to, to, uh, to live with a group of people after Hurricane Katrina that was devoting 24 hours of its time, because in a certain sense, even sleeping was, you know, regenerating ourselves so we could go on, devoting all of our time to doing exactly what the community needed at that moment. 
you know, whether it was taking someone to a hospital outside of New Orleans because there were no hospitals operating in New Orleans, whether it was getting food to people, whether it was cutting down trees that had fallen on people's houses. We, our life at that point was to do exactly what was needed by the members of the community. And it occurred to me, this is exactly what people's lives should be like all of the time. We wouldn't be in the midst of a disaster, but we always have problems to solve. We always have needs to fulfill. Why can't this be our way of life? And one of the things that inspired me about the so-called Gandhian movement or Sarvadaya, the welfare of all, is, you know, I have a chapter on this in, in the Impossible Community, and I, I recommend that people look at that program in detail because it was based on village democracy a village assembly, a council, cooperatives that would transform the economy, a peace army, the Shanti Sena, uh, which would which would replace uh, police forces with with groups of mediators and so so forth. And one of the things that I really liked about it, besides all of these other things, and I've just mentioned a few, is that the Gandhians had this idea of an ashram which most people think of as some kind of religious community, but it, it was really like an eco-village. And their program was to establish among the people who shared the commitment to the movement to, to go into each village or to, to be basically in your own village or in your own neighborhood, you would join together and create a small community that was already practicing all of the things that the movement was working toward. So the idea was that in any town, in any village, in any neighborhood, people could go somewhere where people were practicing the way of life that the movement, you know, the movement was called the welfare of all. In Sri Lanka, it's called the awakening of all. It's the same Sanskrit term, but, term, but they translate it a little differently. I, I think of this as what we really need is that everybody could walk to utopia from where they live. And that's, that would create the transformation. But unfortunately, you know, I've been thinking about Guy Debord's uh, great concept of the society of the spectacle, particularly after the presidential election we just had. We are dominated by the spectacle. We're dominated by the mass media, the, the means of communication, the digital world, and so forth. We have to create living examples of what we need and what and what 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 we could be yeah yeah and we don't do that you see there's a there's a problem of passivity there's a problem of not having the creative urge so our, our groups need to be working on this we do have groups that are quite dedicated to the to the transformation of the world and to fighting against injustice and creating another world but i don't think we think enough about devoting our lives to living the way of life that would make that world possible. So you were talking about the, the groups coming together in New Orleans in, in this kind of crisis situation to help. How, how have those groups continued in time? Because we clearly see in the middle of a pandemic that even with the urgency, with the death, with the, you know, the, the tragedies, how polarized it can become. And some people, you know, don't believe it and they won't wear masks they won't take action they don't see it as a crisis and, and and yet we know that climate breakdown is it's a wicked problem it's complex it's unfolding over long time frames it doesn't have the immediacy of your neighbor 
you know, dying of COVID. So the urgency is, is not the same. How, how have these communities that you've been involved with in New Orleans, where there was a clear crisis to be dealt with, how have they continued over time? Have they managed to find ways of continuing to look after their needs to, to continue in time? Okay. Well, that's, that's a very complicated question. Because in many ways they haven't, but I think other things have come out of the experience. Uh, I could compare it to uh, the Occupy movement, in which a lot of people say it failed, but other people have looked at the experience that people had in that movement and where they took it and what they did with it later. And often there are things that come out of movements that last for a few years. There was a very large organization in New Orleans called Common Ground Relief or Common Ground Collective. And it was very unusual. Actually, it was very much, it was inspired by two things. One, it was inspired by something that I work work on, communitarian anarchism. And it was also inspired by a friend of mine, Malik Rahim, who had a background with the Black Panther Party. And uh, which has a history that isn't really understood very well by most people. And uh, tens of thousands of young people, mainly, and some older people, came to New Orleans and did volunteer work and lived together and worked together and had very utopian goals in many ways, but they, they largely put aside their utopian goals and worked very hard on saving communities that were threatened with complete destruction. There were areas that were threatened with being written off and not redeveloped, and people would have no place to come home to. And uh, so, so Common Ground, in that sense, was very successful because it helped save communities. Uh, there were also plans to establish worker co-ops. There was an attempt, in fact, to rent a housing development and then to turn it into a cooperative, which did not work out. And many many of the, the more utopian goals did not work out. But I, I don't think that the positive achievement should be underestimated. What also came out of it was something that we sometimes call formation, you know, personal formation, the development of human beings. So that out of that experience of living together and working together, there's something that can be used where all of these tens of thousands of people went to many states and many countries. It's difficult to know what they did with that experience. One thing I do know is that out of my experience of working with a smaller group and living with people and, and uh, you know, having something in common in a very strong sense, a common purpose, a common work, a common commitment, a common life, it changed my life deeply and that I'm doing what I'm doing now because of that experience. So one of the things I think I learned from it is that more people need to have that experience. And that we have, it's not that we, we shouldn't theorize, it's not that we shouldn't write, it's not that we shouldn't become pressure groups, interest groups, lobby, uh, protest in the streets, and do all the other things that are part of social change. But one of the things that we've been neglecting, and for instance, that the base communities in Latin America didn't neglect, and that indigenous communities don't neglect, and uh, uh, certain movements don't neglect, is, is to do the, the really, you know, the, the radical work, which is getting to the roots of things, including our, our, our own personalities, our own way of life, our own everyday life that has to be transformed. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I, I did want to come on to that. The program that you hinted at 
is in many ways vast. It's, you know, we're talking about institutional change, or economic, social, political, you know, multidimensional. And yet underlying this, there is this fundamental question of, of consciousness in a sense, you know, consciousness change. How should we think about that? Or how do you think about that? Clearly different communities, you know, they formulate their, you can take it from a, I guess, a, a, a psychoanalytic or a psychological perspective, but also it's got a strong kind of spiritual dimension as well. That, and that would mean different things to different communities. Well, right. Yeah, it's, it's all of the above. It's all of those things. You just mentioned like three, three or four things that are, are worth going into in, in great, great detail. And one is that consciousness is not some separate thing that sort of floats around. I mean, our consciousness is, is completely interrelated to our feelings, our emotions, our affects, our desires. And of course, consciousness is not an individual thing either. Our consciousness is a shared consciousness. We have el certainly elements of consciousness that are individualized, but, but consciousness is largely social, and we have to think of it that way. Just as many of these things, feelings are social. We respond, you know, we are, we are part of a group, we are part of a community. Even if we haven't achieved our ideal community, we still are part of a, we have a communal being. Uh, so this is what we have to work with, all of those things. So, so I don't think our work is deep enough. This is one reason why the, uh, the therapeutic communities interest me so much. I, it turned out that a, a person who had grown up in, in the therapeutic community in Deal that I, I was talking about in, in, in uh, southeastern England moved to the United States. He read my book, The Impossible Community. He then moved to New Orleans. We spent a lot of time talking about uh, therapeutic community and the ideas that I had written about. And uh, he told me in the end that in a certain sense, even though I used the term communitarian anarchism and the community in Deal used the term evangelical Christianity, <laughs> that we were doing the same things. We were thinking about the same things and we were advocating the same things. The community in England, by the way, is called CCD, Christ Church Deal. It's, it's, it, it's, based in a church uh, in the port town of, of Deal. And uh, it's a community based on unconditional love. I mean, I spent a few days there. I spent many, many hours meeting with groups of people, large groups, small groups, individuals, discussing the people's lives, hearing life stories of people. And it was profoundly powerful. To, to hear what, what, what the possibilities are of transformation, because the community consists of many, many people who had problems of psychological breakdowns, of alcoholism, drug addiction, being victims of abuse in the family was a very common background. And I know the history of many of these people, and there would be people who would be in many ways written off by other people as hopeless. And if I could go into a little detail, because actually the details are extremely important. You know, it's, it's very hard to talk about these questions generically because they're about the, the most minute, minute details of, of people's lives. I spent an afternoon talking to a group of four or five women who had all been basically victims of, of uh, domestic abuse 
and had had breakdowns and were considered basket cases by other people. And uh, they talked about how the experience of being part of an accepting, loving, compassionate community had transformed them. And at the end of a few hours of speaking to them, I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to work on any project, on anything with a group of people, these are exactly the kind of people I would want to work with. I don't know if I've conveyed this well enough, but these people, what other people told me, that, you know, the severity of their problems and the difficulties that they had in life, if there's something that can transform people in this way, it is something very powerful. And I, my own experience with the community is that it was the experience of unconditional love and acceptance as part of a community. And this is often what you find in, in some form in indigenous communities, that there's, there's, a, there, that there's, there's the concept of kinship. And if you're part, you know, there, there's one way of looking at human societies. There are certain human societies in which you're born guilty and you have to prove that you're innocent. That's the one we live in. <laughs> the performance principle, you know, it's called in psychoanalysis. Uh, and there are other societies in which you're born innocent and you're accepted completely by the community. And you have to do something to attack the community to be rejected by the community. So. It works. You see, this is where my optimism lies. This is where my hope lies, that there is something that works. And when people attempt to carry it out, it works. But very few people are doing it. So the problem is not that we don't know as, as a species, there isn't knowledge within our species of how to do things that work. We have to figure out how, well, first, we have to just start doing things. You know, there's that terrible slogan, just do it. Well, uh, that is it. Just do it. When I wrote this book, The Impossible Community, in the preface to the book, and it's very theoretical in many ways. A lot of people wouldn't want to go through all the theoretical stuff. I, I think it has certain value. But at the beginning of it, I said the real message of this book is do it now. And I was hoping a lot of people would read that and get in touch with me <laughs> and start talking about, well, how can we do it now? And uh, it's not that no one has done that. Some people have done it. But I really wish more people had read that beginning of the book. And in a certain sense, I also paraphrased the Four Noble Truths of, of uh, Buddhism. I didn't do it in Buddhist language, but I said for thousands of years, we know what the problem is and we know what the answer is. The problem is there is suffering, and now it's the suffering of the earth, which is leading to extinction. There's a cause of suffering, there's a cure for suffering, and there's a way. And the way is basically wisdom and compassion. And uh, we can't just have wisdom. We can't just know it all and not be compassionate. We can't just try to be compassionate without knowing anything. <laughs> but we have to be wisely compassionate. So if, if that's the center of our communal life, I think we will do very well. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's very profound. I wanted to touch on something which is 
maybe seems technical, once you've got to the heart of the beating heart of, of a healthy, loving community, I, I wanted to just talk about a question of resilience, which is a bit of a technical, slightly problematic term. Hopefully we don't have to discuss right. in much detail what exact definition that, that is. But just in the context of a, you know, in, in environmental or you know, climate breakdown and so forth, there will be pressure on various communities, on various urban areas and various towns. But have you looked at this question of resilience? Do you you know what it looks like? Are there any lessons, even one or two insights into what a resilient community looks like? The problem is that there there are problems of of temporality and spatiality when you you look into these questions. You know, in, in traditional, you know, there's this idea of do something in a way that, that, that would be good for the seventh generation and so forth. You know, my family has been in New Orleans um, for over 300 years now. The first, uh, the first person came in 1719. I'm very proud of him. He was a forced laborer. He was a convict. And uh, he, was, he disobeyed an unjust law. <laughs> He was a faussonier, which means he was a salt smuggler. There was a very hated law about the um, royal monopoly on salt. Anyway, it's a little history. But uh, I think in those terms, you know, one thing I like about indigenous societies and also certain Asian societies is they think about the ancestors and they think about future generations. So there's a lot of talk about resilience. And for instance, in a city like New Orleans, I'll talk about it very specifically where I live. You know, resilience is a very important thing. We have about 20% of the city that's on the old natural levee of the Mississippi River and on uh, a couple of pretty high areas that are above sea level, 10 feet above sea level, that were really the old natural levees of, of previous courses of the Mississippi River. But basically, only 20% of the city is above sea level. So we, we live in a bowl, and we rely on levees to remain in existence. So to be resilient means to continue to fight against the forces of nature and culture, because we have a, a kind of built-in process of sea level rise. And we also have climate change, which is making storms more virulent and destructive, so there, there's an increasing chance of destruction to levees and also sea level rise, which makes it harder to keep the water out. So, you know, one kind of resilience means fighting against nature, basically, and fighting, in a certain sense, fighting against uh, the, the dominant forms of human activity. So we have to think of it that way. Another, another part of this is that uh, it's not going to happen very soon, but if, if the Greenland ice sheet or a large part of the Antarctic ice sheet collapses, nothing that human beings have done in coastal areas like New Orleans will result in the survival of the city, will be 20 feet underwater. So there are limits to resilience. Yeah. So my point is that there's some problems we have to solve and that trying to be resilient is not the solution. On the other hand, within certain limits, resilience is, 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 is not an insane project. It's a sane project. So for instance, you know, we can, uh, uh, originally, and where I am, there, there were all sorts of bodies of water and bayous running through and so forth. So there, that, that there were natural ways 
of the land regenerating itself and, and uh, having runoff of water and so forth, having less flooding. So we can, we can learn from, from nature. You know, that's what ideas like permaculture are also uh, about. We can learn from nature how to do things in a more regenerative and also resilient way. And of course, that's what we should be working on. That's also what, what, our, what our educational system should be about. This is why learning about the land is so important. Yeah. I mean, I could give you many. Uh, to me, it's a very concrete question. Yeah. You have to learn about what the problems are. You have to learn about the land. And then you have to learn about how you can be resilient to the maximum degree. Before Hurricane Katrina, I didn't know that there was an old barrier island underneath New Orleans. Before the Mississippi created the land, our, our land has only been around, you know, for a thousand years, 1500 years or so. Before the land was created, we were part of the Gulf of Mexico. And there was a barrier island called Pine Island, which was underneath what's now New Orleans. The Mississippi River created the land and deposited soil, basically, over this island. Many, many centuries, or quite a few centuries later, the, the Corps of Engineers, which is responsible for the levees, built levees over one of these old barrier islands. And they, they put the sheet metal that was to protect the city into the sand of the barrier island. And this is one of the reasons why the levees collapsed and the city was flooded. It's not the only reason, but it was a major reason because of the structure. These were called eye walls that, that just went straight down in, into the sand of the barrier island were easily undermined by the flooding. Uh, one of the things I learned so much about after Hurricane Katrina was, was geohistory, you know, the geography and the geology of the place. I knew a lot about it already, but I learned more about the long-term history and how we're part of it. So if we want to be resilient, one of the things we need to do is learn about the land. We, we need to learn about our natural history, our geological history, and our social history. Yeah, very interesting. What's next for you, John? There, there are lots of things going on. I have a couple of books I'm working on. One is on dialectical social ecology. Another is, is on a social history of New Orleans in the 19th century based on 400 pages of uh, family letters that were sent to the cousins in France between the 1830s and the 1870s, which I've translated. And it's going to be the core narrative about the history of New Orleans and basically the collapse of French Creole society in the American Civil War. And the subtext of that book is going to be what happens to a society that does not prepare for changes that are inevitable. In the case of our society, it was slavery disappearing. Uh, so those two books are part of the future. I also have this project called La Terre Institute in rural Mississippi, which is out in the forest. And uh, we have 88 acres of a number of buildings. Uh, there are a lot of projects for courses, workshops. Uh, work on the land, solar energy, which we're, we're expanding again, and a lot of other projects. And I'm looking for people to work together on the fundamental problems. I, I'm very much interested in networking with people who take seriously our, our position in geohistory. And the fact, uh, if I could just uh, throw out one more formulation of this, we have to do something that has never been done before in human history. 
there've been two there's been there've been two world historical revolutions the agricultural revo revolution and the industrial and uh cybernetic revolution that we're in the midst of we have to we have to do a regenerative revolution which for the first time in history will change the course consciously of geohistory toward regeneration and that's really what i think of as my future project to work on that with other people and of course with the earth yes indeed that's a good place to to finish with the earth where we began a wonderful vision john and i wish you the very best of success with your work and thank you so much for taking the time today to to share all you've learned and insights over many decades well thank you i really appreciate being part of your wonderful series if you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda we think you'll enjoy roman krisnarek's thought provoking new book the good ancestor how to think long term in a short term world which explores how we need to expand our time horizons to become good ancestors and plan and take action that will resonate over the coming decades centuries available online and in all good bookstores thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting it would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media you can sign up at itunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes